Hey guys, Chris Chavez here with the Sidious Mag Podcast. Wanted to give a quick update as to why there was a little bit of a delay with a new episode this week. Everyone seems to be pretty busy with writing or producing some sort of new Boston Marathon content. So our apologies on our end. I'm in Boston right now, and yesterday, Friday, I got to be part of the Tracksmith panel at their new location on Newberry Street. So if you're ever in Boston, stop by their store. It's been it's pretty cool. It's got a remake of the Elliott Lounge, the famous uh, track and field bar on the uh, second floor of the location. But it was a pretty cool conversation between myself, Matt Taylor of Tracksmith, Mary Wittenberg of Virgin Sport, and Tony Revis, the famous running announcer whose voice you might be familiar with. So we talked about the future of the sport and where we kind of see it going. Some good stuff, some bad stuff, where we could get better. So my uh, my apologies for dropping this episode late and for the quality. I just recorded it off my iPhone. So I think what's uh, more quality is the actual conversation that took place. So enjoy and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. We'll be back with some more regular episodes and the voicemail episodes uh, next week once we get our wheels back under ourselves. Um, so, um, so, Mary, you sort of had the um, opportunity to build Virgin Sport from scratch. We're about two weeks away from the unveiling. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about sort of what we can all expect and sort of um, where your experience with New York Roadrunners and New York City Marathon, what, what things have gone with you to that and what's sort of totally from, from new and, and from scratch? Sure. Uh, first, so great to be here. And Matt, it's thrilling to see um, you in your new home. And if we can come anywhere close to building the, um, the passion that you've built around the Tracksmith brand, I'll be, I'll be really, really happy. Um, I love being formally known as the New York Rotors, um, president and CEO, um, and had an amazing experience there. And because of an amazing team there, knew I could uh, leave the organization and they would be they would do better than ever. And I could pursue a dream and a passion I always had, just really, really deep inside. Um, just like when I was a lawyer, I always wanted to work in running, and I always wanted to get people moving, and so I knew I would. I was super excited about making the jump to New York Roadrunners when other people were thinking, what? Why is she leaving 10 years as corporate lawyer? This time, I always had this real passion about take, taking this, this desire and ability through big events to motivate people to move, taking it on the road. And when I heard that Richard Branson wanted to bring the spirit of Virgin to sport, I've got to say, I instantly knew I was going to do it. And um, it took me many months, actually, to say I would, because I had to really process you know, leaving something else that I very much loved. Um, but I just couldn't resist. And simply put, it was that opportunity. All of us are in sport, so we know what we get out of it with what comes with perseverance and, and courage and, and trying and failing and, and effort and, and the satisfaction that comes from putting ourselves out there and, and getting out of our comfort zone and, and how much fun it is actually once we like to call it harder and fun. Once you're into it, it becomes part of our lives. But for so many people, they hear the word sport uh, it's not for me, and I instantly saw if we can put Virgin in front of sport, maybe we can, you know, blow the doors wide open to sport and get a lot more people say, hey, well, that sounds kind of fun, maybe that is for me, and then, as you know, once we pull somebody in and get them into this environment and connect with other people, it's, it's really quite a, quite a quick, often, um, uh, cycle for somebody to really really get into it. So what we're going to be doing, so we start with the purpose of helping the world move together. I like to say, but spend every day, how do we help people over the hurdles that stop them from doing what they want to do in health and fitness, stop them from being their best? 15 years ago, we'd sit here and say, you know, it's really good for you to run. It's really good for you to do core. We don't have to do that anymore. The vast majority of people know it's really good for them. The vast majority of people actually really want to get healthy and fit. 
but there are these barriers that stop them that are real, right? They don't have time, it's no fun, my hair's gonna be all wet, it's gonna make me late for work, uh, you know, I have to do it alone, I'm no good at it, I'm not the right body type. I mean, the list of reasons that stop people is really long. So we spend every day saying, how do we help people over those barriers? And our conclusion was, the number one thing we can do is bring people together, because if you introduce people to other people, for the vast majority of us, it'll kick our butt out the door and we'll have a lot more fun. Um, and then we said, well, if bringing people together is the single best way to start and the single best way to keep most people, we have lots of people who don't need any of that and maybe they'll win the race on, um, on Monday, but most people need other people. Um, we decided the best format would be you know, big events that are really wrapped in what is virgin style of music, art, food, fashion, fun, local environment, local people. And the big decision we made was we looked at the space and said, wait a minute, this is kind of interesting. We know all the research is you're most influenced by those in your daily lives, right? Now, we're, we all develop friendships and running. But most of your workmates or your family members are not all into Ironman or marathons or on the other end of the spectrum and just want to do, you know, a color run. <coughs> and so I said, wait a minute, I can't really think of, why don't we just put them together? So if we, inspired by Coachella and the music festivals <coughs> where the aficionados of music go, but then someone else is going because it's a happening, well, wait a minute, why don't we just put a variety of distances together in a variety of sports? So what we're starting with is but we effectively a, a festival of fitness. So we're gonna have headline in year one will be distance runs, half marathon starting in East London, April 30, um, 10K in the middle of July in London, uh, half marathon in, in San Francisco in October, and a half marathon, <coughs> potentially a 10 mile, but likely a half marathon in Oxford in, in England in October, but each will have a variety of others. So in East London, in two weeks, we'll have a 5.5K, which is just 110% of the 5K. Just It's all about running with your mate. And then we have a whole day of high-intensity type of fitness of boot camp, um, boxing, um, you know, kind of Zumba style, um, yoga, so that people can, everybody hopefully has, has something that they really feel that is right for them but really wrap it in, in loads and loads of fun. So the idea is help people take on challenge, don't water it down for them, but really wrap it in tons and tons of fun. And we'll see if we can get people excited and moving and then introduce them to what's happening in their local community where we know the amount of free fitness today and the number of people out there gathering other people together in running and fitness is, I think, greater than ever before. So if we can shine the light on who's there in the local community day in and day out and connect people, then I think we'll have make have real lasting effect in yeah. people's lives. Yeah, great. Um, Chris Chavez um, covers track and field and road racing for Sports Illustrated and is the editor-in-chief of a new um, running publication called Sidious Magazine, um, which is really bringing a, um, quite a fresh perspective to the way the, the sport is covered. Um, ignore Chris's baby face. He's um, <laughs> actually quite quite experienced. Um, so Chris, you've worked at ESPN and Sports Illustrated, so you've obviously been exposed to and are a fan of a lot of other sports outside of running. And I'm curious what you've maybe seen in those sports from sort of the media side and how the media thinks about them, how they cover them, how the public perceives them that running and track and field could learn from some of those other sports. Yeah, so, I mean, thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, it's a little weird to be the 23-year-old up here who's, yeah, looks who's probably, looks like I'm 17 maybe, uh, uh, to talk about the future of the sport, but it's, I guess, what I'm going to be going, uh, working with going forward, and so it's exciting. Uh, the sport's at a very interesting time for sure, um, and I think, like, it's just going to continue to grow. Um, it's going to evolve because I think the biggest thing that I've, I've learned working at places like ESPN and SI is that, uh, I mean, the main thing that everyone cares about really uh, on Sundays is football, you know, NBA playoffs are coming up. So, I mean, if you take those sports and you go back 30 or 40 years, the way that those were presented are much different than what they are now. Um, so I think with track, there might be some sort of evolution that needs to come with, with these track meets and, and the way the sport's presented. Um, but it's also like you also want to keep what makes the sport so, so great. And so I've been able to 
I guess, get around to different track meets and different sort of events and, and see the interesting ways people are, are you know, putting on these, these track meets. And one of the ones that stood out to me was actually in 2015 when I went down to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I covered, uh, it was the Sir Walter Myler. And it was um, a very interesting concept for a race where they pretty much just put on four miles and, and four mile races. And the mile is a distance where everyone has run it in, in, in you know, PE class and it, while they were growing up. And it's aside from when you get asked, like, have you run a marathon before? When, when you tell someone that you're a runner, they usually will also ask you, oh, what's your mile time? And so the mile is, I think, something that is uh, very easy to get people to understand. And so the meet takes four different miles and uh, they've got like an, an elite section, a sub-elite section for both the men and the women and they build storylines around it as well. So I think the year, the first year that they ever did it was uh, just one local guy and his brother trying to break four minutes for the mile and so people came out to the track, it was maybe 500 or so people who showed up to watch this and then the second year they built, a, they wanted to, tr since they weren't unable to break four minutes, they wanted to bring in a professional or someone to do it and so the storyline became can someone run under four minutes for the first time in Raleigh in like 40 or something years and so they got it done and and slowly but surely more people started paying attention to the narrative that was coming around to Raleigh every summer and uh, then the next year they did uh, North Carolina versus the world and so they brought in you know some of the top North Carolina runners and some of the uh, top U.S. runners and they um, yeah, so they went head-to-head -head pretty much, and, and again, they broke four minutes for the mile. And so it became kind of a staple of this community. And I think it's the way, it's finding storylines, I think, to get to uh, a, a bigger audience for sure. And that's something I think that uh, is also part of what I do at Sports Illustrated as well is, uh, you know, there's, I could be very technical, and I follow the splits and, you know, the workouts and the mileage that people do. Uh, but to... A regular reader who might just happen to click on, you know, the article because they don't follow the sport, I have to kind of maybe, I guess, a little bit water it down, uh, but also, like, find a way to make it engaging for, for, for them. So if for something like this weekend where it's, like, the storyline that I guess, like, would be easiest to for someone to understand is, is an American woman hasn't won in 32 years, and so this looks like a really good year for that to happen. And so that's something that I think people can, can really get behind. Um, so it's, it's finding those different types of storylines. And uh, it's... Uh, track, I mean, I think we also have to kind of be honest with ourselves and, and think that it's not going to be as big as the NBA or the NFL. Um, and I think if we just kind of come to terms with what we, what we have as a sport and just, I think, just continue to better it, we can try and bring in uh, more people. At the same time, with uh, what I'm doing, I guess, with, with Sidious is also, I've kind of created a space where, um, you know, I've got kind of like a blog for, for me to write more freely, and that's where I guess maybe I'll share some more of my, my thoughts when it comes to the, you know, if there's a track meet, say, in Seattle or Boston on a weekend, it's really hard for me to pitch that kind of story to an editor at SI, um, because it's like, well, I've got... I could give you a thousand words about how, you know, Matt Centrowitz ran a really fast time this weekend in Seattle, and, and I think this is probably what it means for the season, but to someone who reads SI, like, they really won't care about, you know, random meat on a weekend, and so um, it used to be that way. They used to. I know, and it's, it's, that's part of the reason why I eventually did end up choosing to go to SI, because I knew they had that past, and and they did have they had editors who care about you know the sport of, of track and um, so I've created this kind of a space where it's we've got a different fresh and uh, fresh perspective I think is the way you put it and a different type of voice and we're I think going to try and have a little bit more fun and present the sport in a in a different way and so it's it's finding I think a, a happy medium between those two uh, at least for the people who are already follow the sport and maybe try and draw in some people who. Um, maybe don't follow the elite side as closely. I do think that there is a big gap between, um, you know, there's there's a lot of people, and if you look on Instagram, there's like probably, it blows my mind sometimes when I come across a profile and I see, you know, this, uh, say it's like a full-time a full lawyer 
who's got like four kids or something like that, and she's got twenty something thousand followers on Instagram, and she's you know she's just she's not an elite runner by any means or anything like that, but a lot of people pay attention to what she has to say or what you know, and there's many people like this, and so there's a whole another side of running, and I think bridging that gap is something that's really important. Um, and so it's finding a way to highlight the, that crowd as well and bring them together because I'm sure they might find the elite side of things interesting. And, you know, the people who follow the elite side haven't heard some of these other stories. And it's kind of just connecting uh, those two sides, I think, would be great. And I think the Sir Walter Myler example is a really good one. I remember they when they did their inaugural event, seeing the photos, I wasn't there, but they let the fans on the track, you yeah. know, and, and go to any professional track. I mean, you can't get anywhere near the track, you know, and the people are literally on the track as they're coming down the home stretch, and that just creates an environment that's so different um, than how we traditionally, you know, spectate track and field. And I thought that was really interesting, and it's not like, it's not rocket science, you know. No. A lot of people have been saying that for years, that we should do that, and they actually did it, and I thought it made for a really compelling, you know, um, experience for the people that were there. Um, so, uh, Tony Revis has been the voice of the sport for as long as I've been alive. Um, literally, I think one, one month after I was born, in May of 1977, Tony's first radio show aired in Boston. Um, on Monday, he'll be covering his 40th Boston Marathon in one form or another. Um, <laughs> Once, once he starts talking, you'll understand why he's been the voice of the sport for 40 years. Um, as an observer of the sport uh, for four decades, you've sort of had a backstage pass to the show. And I'm curious sort of about the bookends of, of your career thus far. So in the 70s and 80s, um, you, know, you guys just mentioned Sports Illustrated. We actually ironically have, I didn't set this up, but we have seven issues here from the late 70s, early 80s, where track and field is on the cover. There's one about the Olympic trials. I mean, imagine, you know, nowadays getting the cover of Sports Illustrated for the Olympic trials. Um, it seems like the only time, you know, track and field or, or running is on the cover is either in an Olympic year or before years we get, get a little bit of press or if there's a scandal, right? Um, so what, from your perspective, do you think has changed over those four decades that we went from that to where we are today? Uh, first of all, Matt, uh, congratulations on Trank Smith. It was a pop-up story just a couple of years ago here. We said, boy, what a great space this would be. And guess what? Yeah, here we are. Right. <laughs> uh, well, uh, talk about bookends. i got a couple of bookends sitting right there in front of me. This is Bob Hodge. How did you put your hands up? Uh, Greater Boston Track Club, third at the Boston Marathon, 1979. Wow. And uh, <laughs> uh, the first guy I ever interviewed, I used to be a radio guy here in Boston, a, new, a news guy. And then uh, I met Bill Rogers, you, Bill Rogers, I met him socially, and so I asked my new, I told my news director, listen, I, I met, I know Bill, and so let me cover the marathon this year, and then I covered the marathon. So I went from uh, dealing with criminals and, you know, politicians to dealing with runners, and I sort of waited, and I said, you know, you know. And so I started a radio show in the, uh, called Runner's Digest in 77, and the first guy I ever reviewed was Randy Thomas. Uh, Randy, where the hell are you? <laughs> Randy, he was fifth in 78 at Boston, but in multiple time, a national road champion, a Boston College coach for many, many years. So that's why I started out with, uh, with Randy and Haji and uh, the Greater Boston Track Club, and uh, you really felt like you were a part of something special, not only with the marathon, but uh, the, the year, it was 79, Bill won it, and, uh, and Haji, you were third, and... Uh, well, was that Randy? You were fifth that year, and then uh, Dickie Mahoney was ninth or tenth. There were like four guys in the top ten he from the club. Fifth. He was fifth in '78. Fifth in '78, right? But who was there? Was four guys in? Who was two eleven? Two eleven. Yeah, Haji was a two ten. So that's they're, they're still racing one another. <laughs> but part of the problem, I tell you, except for like Galen Rupp and, and uh, I mean Shalane Plenty has done a great job, and Karen Gauch has done a great job. But we had for many, 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 many years, uh, we didn't have a home team as the sport has just been dominated over the last generation by the East Africans, who are wonderful, wonderful people. But when you have, even in 2011, that very fast year when they ran 203.02 and 203.06 with um, Joffrey Mutai and Moses Mosop, I mean, people, it wasn't like they weren't clapping, but it was more like, well, isn't that interesting? As opposed to them going nuts when Bill was winning or when Joni was winning. I mean, it just makes a difference. And I kept telling the people at the World Marathon Majors, you, you can't root for anonymous people wearing shoe company bibs. I mean, what am I rooting for? I always use the example of, remember Yao Ming 
Yao Ming, seven foot seven inch, not a Chinese basketball player, a Houston Rocket basketball player. Why don't we have New York and Boston and, and Berlin and Tokyo across and Chicago across these guys' vests? Give me something to root for. You can't root for anonymous and interchangeable. Uh, just uh, nobody cares. You look at the you look at the films from nineteen seventies and eighties. Double the number of people on that field than there is on Monday. Double, and the crowds were enormous because we had people we were rooting for. What, now you think the crowds are double what they are today? Yeah. Oh, they're really? huge. They're huge. Plus, there were they're no snow fence. He was like Tour de France. You couldn't you couldn't pass anyone going up Heartbreak Hill because the single father patch on your ass. You couldn't. I mean, the, it was. I mean, it was huge. It was huge. It seemed like huge. Now, something we're talking about how to, how to link those two, the back and the front. Because it used to be the back of the pack were fans of the front of the pack. There was a link. Nowadays, well, I was in the Chicago Marathon last year, and I was with uh, Ed Stone, You know, Ed Stone, a great American runner, BYU coach, and we broadcast together. And, and I said, Ed, let's go. We're going to the, we had to do a talk over at the expo. I said, Ed, Ed, watch this. Hi, excuse me. Uh, we're, uh, can you name any of the athletes in this year's field? Can you name any of the previous champions? No. We asked 100 people. No. No. And no, and, and no interest. No idea who the hell was in this. No, no interest whatsoever. That's a problem. So we got to do something like it. Now, last weekend, I was fortunate enough to be in Honolulu, Hawaii, for a race called the Hapalua, which is the Hawaiian word for half. Uh, the same people who put on the Honolulu Marathon in December started the sister race in 2012. Now, they didn't have the money to put in a big field, but they wanted to have elite fields. So what they did to us, and here's a good idea, they, had, they invited three women, three men and a woman, uh, pros. And so what they did is, and then they found 24 of the best runners on the island, and they gave them four people, I mean, in different, different types. Okay, you, you get a six-minute head start. Well, you get a 20-minute head start. So 20 minutes, then 16 minutes, then 12 minutes, then 10 minutes, down to six minutes, and the elite woman went off with a six-minute crowd, and then the 8,000 people and the pro men go after them. And the first human being across the line gets the money. Well, now you've got, you got a team. Now you got people to root for. And now the people, the local people, are trying to race against Kenyans. And, oh, my God, this is exciting. And also, it's a whole different attitude about what they were doing. So that's what I think we've got to do. Find ways of connecting the back of the pack competitively. Not just we're running down the street and nobody, and nobody cares. I mean, not Boston, obviously, you care because you had to qualify for the darn thing. But so many of the people in the back of the pack, my wife's a coach out in San Diego. I mean, I used to live here for 26 years, but I forgot the purpose of cold weather. And I, I moved out to California. But my wife coaches out there. And she had this one lady who she got qualified for the Boston Marathon. And so we're at the Copley Plaza Hotel. And I said, oh, well, there's Joni. And I said, well, you know, that, you know Marla, this is, this is Joan Samuelson. And here's Marla who qualified for the Boston Marathon. She walked me and said, who was that? I said, well, you qualified for Boston. Don't even know me. Joni Benoit Samuels was in, for, God, for God's sakes. So, so that's like the last 20 years I've been saying, for God's sakes, a, a lot. Because it's frustrating. Chris, you talk about it. In the first 50 years, so I'm old enough to have the first subscription, 1954 to 2004, 99 track athletes on the cover of Sports Illustrated, including six sportsmen of the year. Since 2000, one person on the cover. From two a year average to one, Usain Bolt. He's been on twice, 2009 and 2012. And last year, yeah. And last year, but it's like one guy. It used to be all the time. Not only just on the cover, but sportsman of the year. And that's an out of sight, out of mind. The activity of running has skyrocketed and the sport of running has failed. And it's because we, the people have just invited anonymous interchangeable champions who don't cost a lot of money. And, uh, and now we know people are doing drugs all the time, and so the sport's just getting killed. You gotta, I think you got to bring back competition. So I think that's, um, I mean, that's kind of one of the areas I really want to want to dig in, um, is who is ultimately responsible for promoting the sport? You know, we've got athletes themselves, we have agents, we have shoe companies, we have the events. I mean, Mary, you obviously have worked with a lot of the best athletes who have come through New York for, for one of your many events. I mean, who, who do you think ultimately shares the burden of that responsibility or, or maybe owns the entire responsibility to really look after the sport or, or governing bodies is another one to throw into the mix of people with a vested interest but seemingly sort of inability to, to change things in, in a positive direction. It's a great question. Off the top of my head, um, there's a huge difference. We don't have owners. Right. So people are, in the end, from a commercial perspective, the owners of the football teams and football, their soccer football, Soccer, football, basketball, baseball, there are owners. And those owners, in the end, might have a ton of passion about the sport, but they want to make money and build value in those teams. 
and so they want the biggest names, and they're going to put all their effort behind um, their names, and they want their names to beat, and their team to beat the other guys, where um, in the sport of running, um, we have for many years come out of the Olympic model, where it's a not-for-profit model, and the, the parties of responsibility, um, governing bodies, major races, at least in most of them in history, like a, a New York Runners and a BAA, are responsible for everybody in the sport, not one feeding the other, but just putting on a, a good show. Um, so I think the pro side um, ha has been hurt by nobody having a commercial rooting interest in X number doing really great against, to, to Tony's point, uh, against other teams. And remember what follows the money in, in team sports, the owners have commercial interest, the broadcasters spend a lot of money to, to get the rights, so they have a commercial interest in building the stories and the storytelling that's so critical. And the sponsors have a vested interest because they're spending a lot of money on the athletes, and so they want to tell the stories. So you have multiple people telling, across broadcast platforms, telling the stories of athletes. Um, and then the team selling tickets and, and selling their, their players. I think, so I think that's a huge difference. I think for us now, it's a really interesting mix because on the track side is where you have a closer analogy to spectator sports because you're trying to sell tickets to come watch the pros. On the road running and on the, and the rest of running, um, the purpose of many of the organizations are much more about getting everybody moving. And, and the pros are part of it as a means of inspiration and as we, we want to help people believe in excelling and support those who do, but it's just part of the mix. It's not a, they're, they're not the only ticket to, in fact, the cities are the tickets yeah. in many ways to get people in. And one of the things, even from, even from a track and field standpoint, if you, if you take a look at it, even a Diamond League track meet, you've got three things you'll never see. No event in that track meet will be connected to any other event. Here's the women's 400-meter hurdles. We'll start to okay, now forget about them. You'll never see them again today. Here's the 200 meters. Now forget about them. Here's the high jump. And that's got nothing to do with the, uh, you know, the 10,000 meters. No athlete will be connected with any other athlete, and no one will win the track meet. It's a series of independently exhibitions of excellence that, in their aggregation, have nothing to do with one another and add up to nothing. Where's the narrative? Where's the, who wins the track meet? At least in high school and college, somebody wins the track meet. We, we, we just have a bunch of independent siloed events that don't add up to anything. Yet at the Olympic Games, everyone has that, well, the United States has 32 medals and Russia has this and China has that. It's all unofficial, but that's how we keep score. Why don't we keep score? What did you think of the Nitro Games? No, it's a, try something. I thought that was kind of brilliant. Throw a javelin at a runner. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd watch. <laughs> yeah, the, the Nitro games that you bring up were a pretty interesting concept for sure. And uh, I think it's, I mean, it has its pros and cons for sure. And uh, it was definitely entertaining. You, there's, There was a race that was just based on time who could travel the farthest in that amount of time. And there were, you know, mixed gender races. Um, from like some of the pros that I talked to, some of them kind of said, well, well, "What was wrong with you know an old school DMR?" It's like an, it's like well you know, it's it's old school. That's the thing, and it's it's hard. I mean, it's entertaining for us the junkies, but I mean to put on. I think now the responsibility is to put on a show for spectators, and uh, the way you do that is just coming up with different you know interesting concepts. Like we go back to I mean the Sir Walter Myler. That's that's a pretty interesting. Uh, concept that just I guess you could watch it in like two two hours. It's because uh, some track meets could go on and on forever, and you just need and you have to understand that like the attention span of of uh, of those who are, are watching a track meet is not not that long anymore. And uh, so I think like there's there's different things. I mean, people have tried like the, the beer mile and stuff like that, but I think that takes away from like the sanctity of the sport that that it is you know. And so like there's a bunch of there's there's things that are being tried and I I think it was it was a good idea the Nitro Games for sure. Um, there's a, you know there's a little tweaks in here and there that could be made to new innovative concepts for sure. Do you think there's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation on the media side where they're not covering the sport because it's not interesting enough, but the sport's not interesting enough because the media is not covering? I mean, obviously we have 
great endemic coverage with what you're doing with Let's Run, with FlowTrack, they've been around for a long time and for the diehards. It's great that the mainstream media does not sort of dabble in, in track and field and road racing other than those Olympic years. Do you think there could be a shift or what would it take to get um, some of these larger publications with a broader reach to sort of um, be interested in and, and try to cover, cover track and field? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's so, it's really, it's, it's tough because, I mean, like, like I guess, Tony mentioned to me there were just all these covers where and you you said that the uh, the Olympic trials if, if for us to get the Olympic trials on the cover it's just not gonna not gonna happen. You're saying both. Yeah, exactly. You need the best athlete in the world. But the best athletes in the world in most countries go and play soccer. You know the question is are the best athletes in the world in the game of track and field? And I'm not sure they are anymore. I mean, they're, how many of the great I mean jumpers in the world are in basketball or in football? I mean, those are the, the real. I mean, the all around athletes. Okay, I remember uh, from a golfing standpoint, Gary Player, you know, the great champion from the 60s and 70s, he was saying, you know, even Tiger Woods at 6'1 and like 180 or 185, he says, we, we're going to get this in Dustin Johnson. Dustin Johnson's about 6'5 and a real athlete. He's, he can just crush the ball. He says, we have not got, you know, the, the great, great athlete. Once once the great athlete comes into the game of golf, he'll hit the ball 400 yards. and It'll just change the game completely. It's a matter of how do you, how do you lure the best athletes into your game? And for the most part, people start running by saying, well, I'm trying to make the basketball team, I'm trying to make the baseball team. And it's a second, it's everyone's second sport. I think um, what's his key is to recognize our reality, and there's some huge advantages to our reality. Um, I think that while in, in viewer numbers, we're, the other sports dwarf running track and field, but I think we're in a world where, where increasingly people want to actively be engaged in what they're doing. Um, e-sport is a huge threat to regular sport um, and people are watching the pros but people are at home playing I actually think that's a closer threat now to us because the football baseball and basketball people are playing at, at Little League and the like but they're not like there's not as direct a tie as I think I think e-sport is like ours it, except now their pros are, are already bigger but, but there's a participation side there that's the game kids are playing right we, we have so many people participating, and, and I think that desire to not sit back but to engage is going to be greater and greater. We can't look at media the way we used to. The media, my God, I feel, I mean, we have brilliant journalists, and, and there are no jobs, and there's so little funding in classic media, but in participatory media and social media, there's so much, and and the people's voices are are, are 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 what matter in terms of what they want to read and listen to. And, and to Chris's point, the, the people side of the sport is kind of booming. And, and and people who are coming into running from other, whether it's fashion or other areas, um, they're bringing a lot of followers. And if we can grab those people and get them active themselves first, and find some way to introduce and tie the, the more competitive side to those people, I think it's going to be back to almost a person-to-person -person human storytelling. But I don't think expecting that we can take the playbook of the, of the U.S. major spectator sports is going to... Gonna work. Uh, I'd be honest. Like if if I could do my part in it the way I had it at SI, and I mean I've read stories because like, I go back and I read these stories for inspiration, and I take notes uh, to pick up on things you know here and there how they got this quote, how they got that quote, and and so I've I've read that you know the budget back then I mean like uh, like was just crazy. Like they would they would I think pay uh, you know thousands of dollars for uh, I forget. Uh, was it uh, Kenny Moore to go and follow like this this one Olympian around and it's like for me to to like I I'm very intrigued by this this Nike sub two thing that's that's going on but for me to get on a flight to Italy you know spend a couple days out there and, and watch it and cover it and it's just like for it, the amount of money that's gonna be spent on just that story isn't gonna translate enough into what uh, we would probably get back in terms of traffic it's not gonna go in the magazine. Um, so it's it's just like you have to. There's a bunch of side it, like, it's not what it used to be either. Like at, at SI, and so there's a bunch of the media has as you said it has has definitely changed. And that's actually why I kind of like started my own thing too, is to have a little space to to be able to 
write more freely about things that maybe I care about but wouldn't be able to get to. Yeah, so so print obviously is, um, is challenging. Um, we've talked and touched on a little bit TV, um, which still has a, a, a very broad appeal. Um, but I think everyone in this room, if you are a, a running fan of some sort, um, probably wants to pull their hair out watching any televised broadcast of track and field or um, or any any road race. I mean, it's it really is. It's 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 <laughs> when you get when you get your when you get your twenty minutes. It's fantastic. But when the guy's running up Heartbreak Hill next to some some person asking them questions while they're running, you're just like, oh come on. Um, but but what what about? I mean, you said we 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 can't compete with with NFL and and the NBA, and and absolutely right. But do you think that TV could play? a really important role in revitalizing a general interest in sport. Every other professional sport has completely changed how they present their product on television, and track and field has not moved an inch in two decades. Uh, a number of years ago, a friend of mine, uh, some friends of mine out in Los Angeles, uh, at the UCLA Wireless Health, Wireless Health Institute, it's the engineering department working with the medical they, were, they created these, uh, these accelerometers, these little sensors that fit on shoes for, for uh, patients who were Parkinson's and stroke victims in their abnormal gait, and they wanted to monitor them, monitor them in real time at home, not come to the clinic and try hard. We just wanted so we they devised these things so they could watch up, they could see their ground contact time, stride length, uh, roll of foot, those metrics in real time through the cloud, through cloud technology. Well, they finally got these things small enough. We took them over to Kenya in 2012 and put them on the feet of Patrick McCallum. He was the world record holder in the marathon. At, uh, for a 25k fartlek session on the, on the Maasai land road in, in, in Gong outside Nairobi. And we're, here we are in the back, we're filming it, and we're in the back of the truck, we're looking at these metrics in real time. At the same time, the engineers in UCLA were looking at the same thing in real time. And we thought, Patrick McHale withdrew from the Boston Marathon. He was supposed to run this thing because he had soft knee problem. We identified it back in 2012 with this technology. We found out exactly why. He's got an asymmetry right over left, and you can see where the stresses were coming out. And if he just would have done the exercises that they were identified, he would have fixed a problem, but they don't want it. But the bottom line was, but we put that on television with the Los Angeles Marathon. We put it on three runners in a lead pack, and we had it in real time up on the screen. It was like a dashboard. It put you inside the stride of the athlete. And then we put it on three people from the LA Roadrunners, the three hour, three, three, 30 people, and we showed them at the same time. And you could see the difference in what an elite athlete and what the, a three and three hour athlete but what everyone said was, ah, people always ask me, you, you broadcast running events, what do you say? They're just running. And I've said, well, there's a lot of things. Actually, there's all kinds of them against the previous competition and on this course, and there's a lot of things you can into the game. But the minute we put this technology on the screen, it put people inside the stride, and they finally understood why that guy, you know, I've seen thousands of races, that guy, who I can't tell the difference, but I can read this, he's got more... His ground contact time has slightly gone up, and his heel lift, his ground, his back kick has gone down just slightly. I can't see it, but I can read that metric. He's putting more force into every stride to maintain this pace. One kilometer later, he fell off the pace. So you could, it's predictive of outcome. So if you give people a story and a narrative to follow, they will follow it. But most of the time, at these, at these, I'm working for WBZ Television for this marathon. Lovely people, wonderful people. It's the news division is putting the coverage on. They put on one road race a year. And so we reinvent the wheel every time. At the 2007 New York City Marathon, there was the trials on one day, the Olympic trials the next day was the regular New York City Marathon. At some point at the end of the show, when it was uh, Ryan Hall ran that fabulous time and, uh, and Nathan Rissenheim and, uh, and Brian. Brian Sell, and Khalid Kanuchi got fourth. And I said, is it possible for Khalid to still make the team? I said, yeah, if Nathan still thinks he's a 10,000 meter runner and if he chooses to do that, he'll, he, That'll open the spot for Cleve. But it takes you know, I mean, a 27-minute 10K to win at the, at the Olympic level. And if you do that pace, which no one in America had done that point, you've got to finish in 53, 54 for the last quarter. And so he'll probably realize he's a marathon runner because it's better odds. And at the end of the broadcast, Steve Mayer, who's our producer and a dear friend of ours, said, Tony, tomorrow for the marathon, fewer numbers, not so many numbers. You're talking to your maiden aunt. And I said, well, she's unmarried. Is she also stupid? <laughs> I mean, the point is, do you ever tell baseball announcers fewer numbers? Do you tell football people fewer numbers? No, but in running, it's like, dumb it down as much as you can. You know, isn't this wonderful? You know, I said, it might be wonderful, but how about, how about it's a foot race? 
How about it started as a foot race? Why don't we back, go back to covering a sport? That's I just do. Me. I think from a storytelling, you're onto something that it's it's once a year because look at at a time when in in business content is king, right? And if people are building brands and content like you guys, there is some spectacular content. Like that Bobby Gibbs book over there yeah. is awesome, right? Mm -hmm. Like, got it. You could give it to ten people and they would be captivated. But there's some really great content happening. You're gonna do some great stuff in our sport. But it's not by the people putting on the television shows, and and there's no lead in and lead out. So I do think it, from a storytelling, it is rib there are riveting stories from the front of the pack all the way through the pack, and and you know. But we don't have all the cameras on we, all those people. You can't put them on camera. You can't. You can't. Hide well, them. but again, that's changing fast, right? I mean, we we should be able to. Um, have cameras on everybody. Well, but they don't. Victoria does. But we, if you only do one event once a year, there's not a budget. There's not but, a budget. But maybe it's not an event. I mean, maybe it needs to be. Look at the amazing Netflix show. Like we, we need daily. It can't be all of a one day. Or the other thing, another thing we gotta get the Los Angeles Marathon. Now, there's no reason why it's not a. It's a major event, but it's not a major marathon. I mean, it's not Chicago, Boston, and L.A. and New York rather. And, it's, and I've been doing all 32 or 33, whatever. I've done every one of those damn things. And they said to me one time after the 19th, they, they knew their sponsor was going away, Honda, and their NBC uh, contract was ending because they didn't put any money into the, into the athletes and it was a boring, boring racist. And they said, they asked me if I'd be the race director. And I said, oh, for heaven's sakes, no, I never do that. Uh, but I said, well, I, I'll tell you what, you what you ought to do is that you're known, New York is known for the, you know, the five borough, this extravaganza, and Chicago world record course in Boston history and veneration. And you guys are known for not getting money athletes. I mean, you're known for a negative. You've got to be known for something positive. Now, what no one's ever done, you're not going to put real money into the sport because it'll cost you a million dollars, so you're not going to do that. But you know what no one's ever done? You start your women at some arbitrary number in front of your guys, start with the course record differential, and then see if the man can run down the women. Guess what? They did it. There was still one woman running 11 miles by herself because it was a weak field, but it took until the final mile to resolve whether the man could ever catch the woman. Nothing changed with either the men's race or the women's race. Nothing from the previous year changed except the frame that we put around it. We tripled our television ratings. Honda and NBC find off, signed on for five more years. We, in the television business, you have to answer the question, and it's also in the, in the print business, why, why, why are they watching? Why are they reading? Answer that question. We gave them a reason to watch. Because even though they didn't care if it was a Russian woman and a Kenyan man, all the women rooted for whoever the woman was, and all the men rooted for whoever the guy was. We gave them a reason to watch. And the first year was a $50,000 prize. There was still first prize, first prize, both. But the, the, the gender challenge champion got 50 grand, and it worked so well the first year, they put $75,000 next year. Next year, they put $100,000. For the last two years, they haven't done it, because they, they spent some money on, on their trials, and that doesn't, they just lose money for years doing that. But the bottom line is, you have to give people a reason to watch. And if you give them a reason to watch, they will watch. And then we just have to find, I mean, do something. Do something to make them watch, rather than just do the same thing over and over and over again. You're, you're making me, I'm convinced the stories are there, so, you know, for example, in our case, maybe, maybe I, or we hire storytellers and content producers before we hire elite athlete coordinators, because it, uh, the, the, the stories are there. And even and, the Kenji and the Open are wonderful stories. The storytellers aren't there. And so, um... At, at least they can pay attention day in and day out. Yeah. So we, we, so we've got... Media and storytelling um, is obvious components. I mean, we um, we did our best to recreate the Elliott Lounge um, in the back here. Um, the Elliott Lounge shut down in 1996. Was a legendary bar uh, in Boston down the street, a, a runner's bar, but also home to all the Boston um, professional athletes, the the Phoenix, the Global, the writers. It was just this incredible. Um, it was the Cheers bar. It, yeah, was, it was. It was the Cheers bar. I love the show. It just it's the, the Hampshire House, which is actually where they used the, it had a better facade for television purposes. But the Elliott Lounge with Tommy Leonard, yeah, that was really what that bar was. So you could, um, I wasn't, I wasn't around. You were. Um, <laughs> you, you, you could walk in there. You could be a, a four-hour marathoner, and you could walk in, and you could sit next to Randy Thomas at the bar. You could run into Bill Rogers one night in the bar, and today. Our professional athletes mostly train in isolation, at altitude, in remote areas of the world. Yeah. They come down, they run their race. It's very a very selfish pursuit. 
and they retreat, and, well, and they train for the next they've one. They've been remunerated to do that. Yeah, so they've so, been led to that. So, how much of a of a factor do you think that has played in um, in, in the in the sports popularity? The fact that um, the, the masses that we're saying we're trying to connect to the front of the pack, the middle of the pack, the back of the pack, but but there's no opportunity to do that. We used to we used to watch people lead up to their marathon by running races along the way. Um, one of the things I was trying to argue with the world marathon majors again is that you got they have a healthy kidney, healthy kidney 10K in the New York City marathon, half marathon, the BA 10K, the BA half marathon. They, they already have all these other events. You can't have a circuit of six marathons. You can't run six marathons. It's not it's not a tour really. It's not you can't run enough of them to make it. But if you added all, the 10K and the half marathon, now you got 18 events, and then you can sign some other A level those world class events like the Manchester uh, 10K. Uh, you can, you know, the, the Great North Run, the Falmouth Road Race, Peachtree, those kind of runs. Get 25 runs together along with those six marathons under the same umbrella. You've got to run a minimum number of nine events and put seven events and two marathons. Now you got yourself a circuit. Create a circuit. I mean, this is not brain surgery. But you, if you lead people to sequester themselves and cancel for three months, if you, we had dinner. We've had a lot of dinners, but we had dinner one time before the New York City Marathon with the TV people, and you were so excited about the, the, the advertising on the on the bus, and we're talking about a friend of mine, my co-host on my radio show, the dearly departed Todd Miller, had a great idea for a, a run called the greatest, uh, the longest run on Broadway, a takeoff, a takeoff on whatever when every show wants to be the longest run on Broadway, and you said, "Geez, that's a great idea," so, but I don't think right now we have the power to shut down well, that, <laughs> Times that Square. Well, that to the New York City yeah. Right, but the bottom line is. How do you, you give, athletes are pawns. You're paying them to do stuff, so we don't care what they want. They're going to follow the money. Hit them with a javelin. Right. <laughs> but if we, if, we, if we put them in the public eye, you know, you know, a number of times a year, now people can follow it. I mean, when you, you have to earn your, there might be 2,000 golfers who are good enough to play on this weekend's PGA Tour, but there's only 156 with the playing privileges. No, you have to earn your playing privileges. Whereas you'll see someone here in Boston Monday, you'll never see again in the United States. Never, I mean, so what's the purpose? But if they had to earn their playing privileges, and in order to run in one competition, in the golf, in the PGA Tour, once you earn your playing privileges, in order to play in any one tournament, you got to play in 15. Because we have to get to know who you are, and either like you or dislike you, which is fine too, but we cannot be indifferent about you. That is the killer. And we have allowed for one generation or more people to be indifferent about our champions, and look, look at the results is. Me, bitch, and <laughs> So, um, does anybody have any questions? Take a little breather and see if anybody has any questions, comments. Yeah, go ahead. I was wondering, can the sport ever evolve into like NBA, NBL, like a professional league where you have teams of runners competing in different states? Yeah, so actually what's pretty interesting is I, I got off a conference call earlier this week because uh, the, the idea's been thrown around, at least here in the United States, uh, the last couple of years. And I know Paul Doyle first tried to start his little circuit, I think, with the American Track, uh, track League, but it wasn't a concept there with teams. And now uh, Vin Lanana is doing, I think, a pretty good job of uh, getting teams together uh, to do the uh, Track Town Summer Series, which is going to be in, like, several different cities throughout the country over the summer. Uh, so it'll be, I think, New York, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Portland, I believe. Uh, and so there's going to be uh, four different meets, and then the New York one's, I think, going to be the marquee one that they have at, at the end of this, in July, I believe. Fourth weekend. Yeah, and so there's going to actually be like a 5K road race, and that one's going to be open to uh, a bunch of other, uh, just regular people, so like I, I might hop in that 5K, uh, and you'll have some elite runners also participating there. So um, there's a way to connect there. There's the, so the concept of teams there gets a little complicated because, uh, so they tried it for the first time last year, and they had uh, people assigned to these different teams, and then there was, I think, one meet where they competed for the title. Um, but And it, it was televised on ESPN, which is another good step forward, uh, for getting the sport uh, some more eyes. Um, but, I mean, the, the product, I think, that was shown on TV, and this is just, I guess, a kind of a little bit of my opinion, was it, it appeared to be a little bit just like another track meet, except there was the, the team concept there. Uh, it gets It's complicated with track when everyone's sponsored by different people. Not everyone could wear the same uniform because of sponsorships and everything like that. So when you look at the product on TV, you don't see 
you know, like you could tell two NBA teams apart because they've got different uniforms. It can't really be the case in track. Um, so, I mean, that's just like one little obstacle that they've got going in their way. But uh, it's, gonna, it's, it's an interesting concept. I'm excited to see how it develops over the summer. It's in pretty big cities, too. Uh, and some of the top athletes that they've recruited to be sort of general managers that are going to help draft these teams um, it, it are like Allison Felix, Nick Simmons, Bernard Lagat, Sonny Richards-Ross. Like these are some pretty big names, and they, they seem to be pretty connected to the communities that they're going to be participating in. Um, the draft is going to be, I think, broadcast online somewhere, and, and fans get to follow along. And um, So there's a lot of components there. I think initially it might attract the you know the, the the track audience that the sport already has to get it to you know you know the the average Joe you know who just happens to be watching on TV one weekend it's going to be a little bit tougher to you know get him to be behind you know Team New York or Team uh, San Francisco uh, so they, I mean it's it we're give, it, it seems like the U.S. is giving it a shot for sure, and to get it to translate maybe around the world is something that maybe could be uh, you know an objective for the future. Do you have a question? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Mary, you said something that was really interesting about esports being one of the biggest competitors. I would love to hear more about that. Do you think that it's because of the the ability to televise it or the participation where you can feel like you're doing the same thing. I thought that's a really interesting comment. I think first what's interesting is um, from a commercial perspective, the other major sports in the U.S. that are ownership-based are all buying eSports because they believe there's going to be commercial value there, sure. which is something we're missing, right? So there's this, this rush to invest in eSports because it's looking like it's going to be big. In terms of participation, I think that it's it's where there's something very interesting for us is it's not like there were pro eSport people. There were just eSport people, just like we have runners all over the place, right? We have tons of runners. We have lots of people in regular fitness. There were just lots of people gaming. And then they started competing with each other, and they're often on teams, in teams that they're making up online themselves, right? And the people got better and better at it. And, and then from a content and storytelling, is the early, um, some of the early, I'm trying to think of some of the names of the early distributors, but they were actually doing other things and realized, well, we have this niche audience who actually want to watch each other play video games. No one ever thought anyone would want to watch each other play video games, like watching somebody <laughs> run. Who would want to do that? But, but people started wanting to watch each other and wanted to learn more, and then they were applying it themselves. So, so it came up completely through grassroots. And so there's something in that, to me, that is interesting about almost forget what we have. I mean, we're not going to forget what we have, but, but there's something about people who are active participants themselves watching other active participants, and some got more popular than others. And the ones who made money were not only very good, but they were good at getting other people to watch them play. So. I don't know the answer, but there's something very interesting <laughs> in there, and then now the money's following because there's belief that you know it's gaming and people are going to start. But it's high stakes too. It's not the stakes now, are high. Now it's high stakes. Would you guys it? watch a gender challenge where a million dollars is on the line? I try to tell, hey, that'd be the same. What if they had a million dollars on the line? A million dollars in this competition, men chasing women at the world record. I mean, you know, with the men's world record, women's world record, honest things, and it's a million dollars. Where the athlete has to put in, like in poker, you got to put up ten thousand of your own dollars just to enter the enter the thing. The stakes in our sport are so low. What's I mean, yeah. the caddy on the it's a million two for the basically on the week on the PGA Tour it's a million two. The caddy gets ten percent, which means the caddy will make as much money as the winner of the Boston <laughs> on a weekly PGA Tour event. What's interesting esports though? It's not always about the money. It's somebody who's good. They're watching someone else who's good because they want to get good too, and it's not now it's turning into money, and now it's turning into college sport and the like. But like there's a real similarity. Scholarships, right? There aren't, aren't there scholarships? But, yeah, I mean, but, a, I think college, like I think there's at least one college here in the U.S. who started its own like esports. Team. So it's like that's just that's one already, and it's it's yeah. I can't believe it. But, it's like for me, it's like I can't think of anything more boring than to watch someone well, play okay. video games. See the see the analogy. <laughs> Guess what everyone else is saying about running? But it's not watch. about the college scholarship and it's not about the money. They're watching because that person's good at it. Like, yeah. So how do we... And the media's falling too because the thing with esports yeah. is it's, well, like any sort of broadcast will will get thousands and thousands of, of viewers, even if it's just a Facebook Live, I think, of 
of a uh, of an esports competition. But the other thing was uh, when I was at ESPN, it was I think that summer when they were about to launch their esports vertical, and it was just. I, it just blew my mind, and and then I think they they were doing it because they saw Yahoo was doing it, and then I'm at I'm at SI right now, and I've been telling I think kind of my boss, I'm like, hey, like if you want, I mean we don't have anyone right now on esports, but it's like if you want, like I could try and tr- study up on it because it's 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 still kind of early and early on, and I think it's also something like uh, like Fight Club where it's like just because everyone's saying it's going to be the next big thing, like it's just something that just continues to get passed around, and so. Um, it's mind blowing. SI missed the boat on fantasy sports, uh, and I kept telling my boss like, "We don't want to miss this boat because everyone's saying it's it's gonna it's gonna be the next big thing." So also uh, easy to televise. It doesn't go anywhere. Oh, it's Running like, is very expensive to televise. The most expensive that's, thing. That's I mean, you got to take a lot of technology because they're twenty six miles. Well, even the small footprints of thirteen mile loop course, it's a very expensive proposition. So we'll take um, two more questions. Go ahead. You go first, yeah. So one of the things, uh, I love the idea of the two-hour challenge concept. I think it's great. But to the layperson, they're like, oh, somebody ran a, mile, a marathon in two hours. Is that fast? I don't, I don't know. But you know, to us, it's like, holy shit, yes, that's fast. You talked about the team concept, you know, trying to draft people on the teams to try and make it a little bit more interesting. That also kind of sounds a little draft kings-ish. Yeah. You know? So you're, you're kind of like, you're just like trying to pick, okay, who are my teams? You keep talking about the golf analogy. What if we bring, and it took a little while for it to catch on, but what if we bring like the FedEx Cup type of theory? There, why is the World Marathon Majors already branded with a cup? I don't understand. Yeah. Have why, have do not, cup. why do we not have a series where it's like, okay, we're going to get points across the year. You compete in these different challenges or these different things, you score, and then at the end, it's one of the things that we talked, you, you also mentioned, the, the caddy of, of Sergio mm-hmm. in the Masters won more money than, who's the, than the winner of, of this weekend. Right. What if we have a running FedEx Cup where there's big money? Well, we supposedly have one. <laughs> I think, I think what's most interesting there, to speak to that for a minute, I, I think maybe another angle might be the faster way. The challenge at the moment is just like in golf and tennis, um, Golf, tennis center a little bit better, but the major majors are actually bigger than the circuit, right? So the so it's true here too, right? So from a commercial perspective and from an impressions perspective, each major is so big, and at least the top of the, the six are so big, that what you need to have to have a series really work is to convince them, you know what, Boston? Desi's going to go to New York this year because the schedule's better for everybody else, for Desi to be there instead of here. And no one's willing to do that right now. And, and part of the reason they're not willing to do it is in almost every plausible way that you look at it, the, and you compare it to the FedEx Cup, um, and you compare it to uh, also NASCAR, the commercial just spreads out so much that it doesn't actually seem so far to work for any of the majors. A different approach may be, I think, again, trying to take a private look at it. I keep thinking, is there a Ryder Cup approach? So you let the majors, like, like you're just going to have to figure out, is a Ryder Cup approach and do the masses get involved? So like we have a 10K in the middle of July, and I keep thinking, it's July, so it's Independence Day, it should be US, UK, Europe, Ryder Cup, 10K, sent them off, you know, two at a time against each other, and then somehow the mass field involved in the same way. But I think it's going to, I think it's, you can talk to major, but it's going to be a hard fight to get them to give up, because it's so rare they can compete in the marathon distance. To Tony's point, you need the full circuit, and there are other events to do it, but I think it's, nobody's been able to see how it works There's so world. much uh, tradition involved in this sport, and it's so difficult. I mean, and it's a beautiful part of the sport, but it's also difficult because you'll you hear people say, "We used to do a uh, show on ESPN called uh, the Road Race of the Month back in the '80s and the '90s," and we went to the Bloomsday 12K out in uh, Spokane, Washington, and that was 60,000 people. But I said to Don Cardone, a great Olympic marathoner and, uh, and the founder of that race, I said, "Don, you got 60,000 people running a race, but you got..." You got you know eight nine Kenyans running in front of fir trees and rock outcroppings out front, and it's like you drop the neutron bomb, and all the there's no the, the people are there's nobody there. I mean, it's like the buildings are standing, but it's just empty. It's kind of kind of boring. So why don't you run your sixty thousand people first, 
and then make them the audience for a criterion course downtown, which is signage and like petting zoo for the kids, get something to do, and that stuff. And he looked at me like, well, Tony, we've always done it this way. And I said, yeah, and Mr. Ford used to build a really nifty Model T, and then they built another car, and people didn't buy the Model T anymore. So, real quick, just on that exact same theory, I'm from Atlanta, so the Peachtree Peach Road race, yep. a few years ago, they put Meb at the very back of the pack. Right. They let all the runners go off. Right. And Meb to raise charity, however many people he could chase down, right. he raised however much money for every runner he chased Remember down. That. People paid attention to that. Right. Yeah. And also, you got people who are just average, somewhat interested runners that could be running and then go, oh my God, <laughs> Meb just ran by. Right. You know? So then all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I was like, and all of a sudden, they started getting interested. And, you know, things like that. I know it kind of sounds a little gimmicky, but it's well, things like well, no, that that time, time for gimmicks. Yeah. Hey, Roadrunner did that, I think, with the Monty Cooper, right? With, uh, I think it was like one of the New York Giants yeah. Yeah. players. That he, I think yeah. he did it yeah. for charity as well. So, yeah, that was something I think I followed along as well. Yeah. Last question. So, uh, I, first I wanted to make a comment about uh, the Abbott World Majors, which is that they're terrible at telling a story. They're, they just don't even try to tell a story. Uh, but my real question is about um, uh, the elite runners, because, you know, when you talk about telling a story, I think it... You know, there's a story about the race, but people really want to hear about the people. And so I think I think elite runners have an obligation to put themselves out there. You know, someone like you know, Nick Simmons is killing it on social media. Kara Goucher is, is out there. Even Lauren Fleshman is retired and people know her. But how do we but there are a lot of runners who I think just aren't incentivized to get out there. So how do we incentivize them to get more public, to kind of build their brand and build running brands along with them? You've had the perfect word. The, the classic example of me was in 2009, Sammy, the dearly departed now, Sammy Wanjiro, the 2008 Olympic champion from Kenya, the first Kenyan guy to win the Olympic marathon. Fabulous athlete. Uh, he came to Chicago, a 21-year-old, who built his sport around. Uh, Tim Hutchings, Tim, great broadcaster from, from England, was uh, doing the interviews up on the stage. And here was Sammy Wanjiro, he probably got paid, what, two, $250,000 come to that race for appearance fee? Here was Sammy, sitting in his chair. I took a picture of him, and I showed his agent, Federico Rosa, and I said, Federico, this is his attitude? This is, how he comes to, this is how he comes into the race? He said, oh, maybe he's tired. I said, I don't care if he's tired. But until which time, Kerry Pinkowski, the race director, says to Sammy Wanjiru and to Federico Rosa, now, just so you know, just so you know, this is a $50,000 press conference. Now, you act any way you want, but it'll cost you $50,000 if you're a jerk. Just a bit, a bit. But, but there's no such disincentive or incentive. There's, there's no requirements to do anything except run fast from point A to point B, and that ain't enough. I think that's shifting. I think that's the responsibility of the events. Um, that exact example, Samuel Jury with Jury was the most engaging athlete I've ever met. I read up your first to. one. I was with him in Italy doing radio. It wasn't even our event. I don't know why we both happened to be in Italy doing radio. He was unbelievable. We took him on the New York City Marathon course. We do this little, um, they, they do, we used to, I used to, we put an app, the athletes we want to recruit on the course. Everybody else, every athlete gets in the lead vehicle. The court, the field's behind them. The beautiful course is in front of them. They sat like this and they watched the race. Sammy wasn't watching the race. Sammy waving to the crowd. Sammy like um, was was taken by it all. Was engaging. So I think it's a responsibility of events. I think it's shifting. I think there's an opportunity now. I think the majors by getting all these races as a starting point on television in each of these major markets, which is starting to happen. We watched Berlin, right? In Tokyo. Tokyo was on in prime time in, in, in the US. So we've got track and we've got road running, but I think the majors getting on television in all the major markets, getting each one in is a starting point. The next step can then be, you know what? Maybe we look maybe they look at the five and, and spread the athletes across so that you can actually follow. But it it, you do need to be on, and then the, the storytelling really needs there was to be you, you realize that never once in history have all the best marathoners in the world been on the same starting line at the same time. Never once. Another solution, and this is along with this, not just you go there, for 
Boston and it's New York and Chicago and the fall because they're just like a week apart. Then the New York and, and Boston and London as well. Berlin's a separate thing, Tokyo too. But those four are in the same time frame. I still think you could choose. I think you could put all the men in Chicago. No, no, that's and what I'm saying. All, the women, all the women go here one year, all 50 deep. 50, you're guaranteed a sprint down Boylston Street. But if you're, they're still competing against one another for the limited field. So they, they water the fields down by only inviting a certain number. But if you put all the A-level, card-carrying, earned privileges, card in one event, and the next year, then flop, then flop, then flop, then flop. So every year you've got something better. And so, oh, well, we can't do that. We, you know. But that's what you do. You put 50 teams, so you guarantee. The reason that golf tournaments, again, become so close at the end is because you've got 156 players starting on Thursday. You're guaranteed you have a back nine where you got two or three people tied for the lead. If you invite only a small number of athletes, you know, this is a numbers game. A marathon, if you want if you want 10 people running down the street at 20K, you better invite 30 or 40, because that's it. One third will have a good day, one have a regular day, one will have a good day. So it's just a pure numbers game. If you put enough women or enough men in that field, you'll guarantee fast, exciting races. So my uh, my microphone died, so I think that's a sign. Um, so uh, I think we'll wrap, wrap it up. Um, I'm sure uh, Tony will happily stick around and keep talking your ear off if anybody wants to come up and talk to Tony. Um, but I want to thank Tony, Chris, and Mary for joining us tonight.